One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 2.9, Alice, Her Father's Daughter. Last time, we finished the epic and tragic story of Vicky, Princess Royal of the United Kingdom, Princess and Crown Princess of Prussia, and then Crown Princess and ultimately Empress of the German Empire. Her six-decade-long life took in so much tumult, change and controversy, and saw the birth of a nation. Indeed, her life started before and ended long after that of her younger sister, Alice, the subject of the next few episodes. Now, I don't like to predict how many episodes a series is going to take, as I'm almost always wrong, but I can confidently tell you that this one will be shorter than the last. Not only does Vicky more than bookend Alice's life, their stories also have similar characters and similar themes. After all, they had the same parents, similar upbringings, and then married similar men in the same nation. They even shared similar interests and suffered similar perils. I'm not just going to rehash old ground. Moreover, Alice had an elder brother that would be king of the United Kingdom and would even be overshadowed as a confidant and carer for her mother by her youngest sister, Beatrice. So why am I bothering to tell you this story? Why don't I just move on to someone a bit different? Well, then... I will be depriving you of the story of Queen Victoria's most underrated child. Her life has been rather woefully undercovered by historians. Indeed, the only really definitive biography of her was written in the 1970s and hasn't been updated since. One advantage of that book, though, is that there were still a few people alive then who had first-hand stories of Alice. In the foreword, Lord Mountbatten, uncle of Prince Philip and a second cousin of Queen Elizabeth, wrote the following of her. Quote, I was brought up on tales about my grandmother Alice, not only by my mother, but by her sisters and brother and my great aunts and uncles, the brothers and sisters of Alice. With one accord, they accepted her as the most remarkable of Queen Victoria's remarkable children. So, trust me, you will want to know more about Princess Alice. 
Her influence, both intended and not intended, was every bit as important as that of Vicky and Bertie, and she packed it into a sadly short life full of ambition, courage, tragedy and determination. So, I guess we should get going. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Princess Alice Maud Mary was born on the 25th of April 1843 at Windsor Castle, the second daughter and third child overall of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. One of my favourite things to do in these episodes is to do a little analysis on names, and luckily for us, Queen Victoria herself broke down her reasoning in a letter to her favourite uncle, King Leopold of Belgium. Quote, Our little baby who I really am proud of, for she is so forward for her age, is to be called Alice, an old English name, and the other names are to be Maud, another old English name and the same as Matilda, and Mary, as she was born on Aunt Gloucester's birthday. Alice is actually a fairly unusual name for British royalty, at least then. To my knowledge, there are very few of that name before her, though Queens of England listeners may remember an Adeliza of Louvain, second wife of Henry I back in the 12th century, a name which has the same root. Unlike her elder sister, who was named for her mother and grandmother, and brother, who was named for his father, it was a name without much precedent. Aside from the fact that it was Prime Minister Lord Melbourne, Victoria's favourite and mentor's favourite name. Back then, remember, what Lord Melbourne thought mattered a great deal. You may remember from Vicky's story that everyone was rather underwhelmed by her birth, as they'd all been hoping for a boy. Some things never change. Well, despite the fact that Victoria had since produced an heir in Bertie, she hadn't yet provided a spare, and so Alice was initially met with the same disappointment as Vicky. One courtier wrote, quote, It is a disappointment that the child is not a boy. I think there was a general wish in the country that the succession should have been strengthened, by another male descendant. She wasn't a disappointment to Victoria and Albert, though, who could not have been more happy with her. Indeed, Victoria declared in a letter that she could tell that she would be the, quote, beauty of the family. She was quite a large baby, and retained a lot of that weight during her infancy. Indeed, Victoria was wont to call her affectionately, Good Fat Alice, while Albert liked to call her Fatima. She would, though, grow out of her baby fat and become a fairly slim woman. Her childhood, much like Vicky's, can only be described as idyllic. She was three when Albert's great project of Osborne House was completed, and she spent her summers in absolute delight in this wonderful home. Lady Canning, one of Victoria's ladies, commented, This rural retreat perfectly enchants the Queen and Prince, and you never saw anything so happy as they are with their five babies playing around them. Birthdays and holidays were well celebrated in their family, especially Christmas, where tables of presents would be laid out from members of the royal family and household. This resulted in some rather unusual gifts. According to Alice's governess, Lady Littleton, quote, 
One president that I think we all wish to live farther off was a live lamb, all over with pink ribbons and bells. He is already the greatest pet, as one may suppose. Alice's pet lamb is the cause of many tears. He will not take to his mistress, but runs away lustily and will soon butt at her, though she is most coaxy and said to him in her sweetest tones, after kissing his nose often, "Milly, dear Milly, do you like me?" A rather more long-lasting gift came from the great composer Johann Strauss, who composed a dance in her honor called the Alice Polka. I shall play a little of it for you now. But this childhood was not just all about fun and games. It was also meant to be instructive. I talked a lot in the episode on Vicky's childhood about her lessons in political philosophy, history, and statecraft. But they were taught other lessons as well. Queen Victoria, for instance, was very much concerned for the tenants on her land and neighbors to her great estates, and would go personally to meet with them and try and offer assistance. She would often bring her daughters along with her. Both to show them the importance of staying grounded, but also to impress on them the importance of philanthropy in their queenly duties. As a middle child, Alice was on a constant lookout for praise and attention. She was very much the girly girl, enjoying dressing up and wearing jewelry, of which she had far more than the typical young girl. Compared to her rather more prudish mother. She was thoroughly uninhibited and would flirt outrageously with her male friends while young. According to Fritz's sister Louise, Alice was quote, charming, merry, and amiable. Her cheerful disposition and her great power of observation showed themselves very early in the most pleasantest manner, and she had a remarkable gift for making herself attractive to others. Another courtier also commented, quote, "I doubt whether any youth was ever more joyous or bright." She received a similar education to that of Vicky, and while she wasn't her elder sister's intellectual equal, she did have an aptitude for learning and was especially good at languages—a valuable skill in a princess certain to marry abroad. She was also talented at art and music, becoming a talented pianist. However, like Bertie, she did suffer from comparison to Vicky, and so was considered to be a little slow. She was very close to her elder brother and sister, but while Vicky was her confidant and study partner, Bertie was her partner in crime. They were known to sneak off to smoke cigarettes together and pull pranks. When they were caught, they would have each other's back, sharing out the punishments. If one of them was sent to their room, the other would bring snacks and feed them under the door. She was so fond of her elder brother, indeed, that she kept a lock of his hair in a locket, and wore it always. They exchanged a mountain of letters whenever they were apart, and they seemed to have complemented each other perfectly. Alice, clever and sensitive; Bertie, decisive and masculine. But like Vicky, 
the most important relationship that Alice had within her family was with her father. It is said that if Vicky had inherited his brain, Alice had inherited his heart, generous spirit, and a certain world weariness when things didn't go their way. She loved nothing more than giving gifts, saving up pocket money for weeks and selling fruit and flowers that she had grown herself. A German member of the household remembered, quote, At Christmas time, Alice was most anxious to give pleasure to everybody. She once gave me a little pincushion, and on another occasion, a basket, and wrote on a little card, always in German for me, For dear Frieda, from Alice. I felt that she thought how much I must have missed my home that day. In his biography of Alice that I mentioned earlier, Jared Knoll compares Alice to Vicky thusly. Quote, If the Princess Royal got her way through a combination of charm and the exercise of strong feelings, Alice had a quieter and often more subtle way of making herself appealing to others. She had the almost waif-life quality of one who was as merry as any at games and larking, but there was a certain sadness in the fine lines of her angular face, and her deep-set eyes were often more cast down, as if in solemn thought, than was the case with a wide-eyed, round-faced Vicky. During the Crimean War in the mid-1850s, she and her siblings threw themselves into charity work, visiting hospitals full of wounded soldiers returning to the UK, and raising money through selling off their paintings. This war has been largely forgotten, now largely only remembered for two things, both of which had a great effect on Alice. The first is that it gave birth to my favourite poet, Lord Tennyson's enduring work, The Charge of the Light Brigade, with its immortal words, There's not to make reply, there's not to reason why, there's but to do and die, into the valley of death rode the 600. This poem was widely circulated in the UK and Crimea at the time, and would have spurred on Alice's charity work. But the more enduring legacy for Alice was the birth of the legend of Florence Nightingale. She is an absolutely fascinating figure who I may do a series on at a later date. As a nurse, she was actually terrible. More people actually died under her care than that of another nurse, yet as a campaigner, she was peerless. She was a tireless and relentless letter writer, pushing for greater investment in and reforms of nursing, and her constant campaigning saw a great improvement in conditions for the troops. So famous was she that she was actually invited to Balmoral to meet the royal family, and Alice was greatly inspired by her. Indeed, she hatched a plan to run away and serve with her in Turkey, but luckily that plan was nipped in the bud early. Nonetheless, this interest in nursing and care for the troops would never leave Alice, and in later life, she would follow in her heroine's footsteps. This thoughtfulness and care for others could also manifest itself in soul-searching and sadness. Like Albert, she could lose hours and days contemplating life's great questions, and saw him as her ultimate role model, the one man whom she wished to emulate above all others. She herself wrote as a child, quote, It makes me feel so small, so imperfect, when I think that I am his child, and so unworthy of being it. As she entered her teens, her siblings began to fly the coop. Vicky was on her way to Germany with her beloved Fritz. 
Her younger brother Affy was commissioned into the Navy aged 12, while Bertie was given his own residence in Richmond Park and started a series of travels that would take him all over the world. It was time to grow up. In September 1858, aged 15, she went on her first official royal engagement, accompanying her mother to Leeds to open their new town hall, the same one, incidentally, that still stands today. Along with her sister Lenchen, she was greeted by cheering crowns at the train station and found that the people of the city had decorated it with wreaths spelling out their names. The cheers from the crowd were deafening, and Alice was quite overwhelmed by the whole occasion. This was the life into which she had been born. With Vicky gone, Albert now focused on Alice's education. They had dedicated one-to-one instruction every day on history, politics and literature, with the goal of creating another liberal acolyte for Albert. The spectre of marriage was looming, but Victoria was not keen to send another daughter from the family bosom just yet. Letting Vicky leave had been a tremendous wrench for her, and the dreadful reception that she was receiving in Prussia only furthered her caution. She wanted to be absolutely sure that whoever it was that married Alice had to be rock solid. As I mentioned in previous episodes, Vicky acted as the family marriage agent and brought up a number of German suitors for Victoria and Albert's consideration. She would send full reports back of each man, complete with photograph and descriptions, but while some aroused a little interest, most were dismissed for one reason or another. Prince Albert of Prussia came from a dodgy family. William of Baden was a little dim. Leopold of Hohenzollern-Sigmaringen was too Catholic. Seemingly out of German options, the search was broadened, and this brought in the heir to the Dutch throne, William, Prince of Orange. He was initially dismissed for being a bit of a wrong'un, with a bad reputation for drinking and gambling. But after he visited the court, their opinion rather changed. He was the picture of kindness, intelligence and manners, and Victoria warmed the idea of him as the son-in-law. Unfortunately, he didn't actually seem all that interested in Alice, paying attention instead to her siblings, rather nixing that particular potential marriage. This visit, though, really brought home to Alice that the time was approaching where she would be leaving her idyllic childhood behind in favour of a foreign court, and this, understandably, scared her. In a letter to Vicky, Queen Victoria wrote, quote, Only the day before yesterday, she said that she could not dream or think of going away from us, or from here. But this didn't stop the marriage search. Victoria still wasn't thrilled about the idea of losing another daughter to a foreign prince, but she knew that it was her duty, and so started to more actively shop Alice around. In a letter to her uncle, the King of Belgium, on Alice's 17th birthday, she wrote that her daughter was, quote, a good, dear and amiable child, and in very good looks just now. Her future is still undecided, she is quite free, and all we wish is a good, kind husband. No brilliant position, which there is not to be got, but a quiet, comfortable position. Basically what she's saying here, in case you missed it, is that Alice wasn't shooting for a big fancy prince, not that any were available, she wanted a nice prince of medium to low power who could help her live a nice quiet life. Indeed, Victoria was actually discreetly hinting at a couple of young men that she had in mind, the nephews of the Duke of Hesse. 
Okay, where and what is Hesse? Well, it's time to delve back into the mists of German history. Modern Hesse is a state in Western Germany, but for centuries it had been a microcosm of the Holy Roman Empire, a confusing mixture of different kinds of state from bishoprics to Landgraviates. I'll do you all a favour then and skip ahead to 1806, when, following Napoleon's crushing victory at Austerlitz, the Holy Roman Empire was dissolved. Most of Germany was then reorganised into the Confederation of the Rhine, and from that emerged the Grand Duchy of Hesse and Bayrhein. It was divided into three provinces and was not actually one contiguous state, as one of the provinces, Upper Hesse, was split from the rest of the Grand Duchy. After the defeat of Napoleon, it came under Austrian influence, and though it lost some territory to Prussia following the Congress of Vienna, it was still the eighth largest state within the German Confederation, both by area and by number of soldiers. In 1860, when Victoria wrote that letter, Hesse was ruled by Grand Duke Louis III. He was in his mid-fifties and had no children. His heir was therefore his brother, Charles, who had four children, the eldest of which was a 23-year-old man named Louis. Victoria saw Louis of Hesse as the perfect Goldilocks husband for Alice. He was an heir to a nice duchy in a nice part of Germany that mostly kept out of trouble. She would be close to Vicky so that she could look out for her, and would have the added bonus of adding another liberal force to Albert's grand plan. Victoria then got Vicky to make some discreet inquiries and to send a full report. This she duly did, and it only served to make them more intrigued by the match. Albert did his own due diligence, talking to his friend von Stockmar, who assured him of Louis's good character. The Duke was delighted that his nephew was attracting the interest of no less than the daughter of Queen Victoria. But there was a problem. Louis already had a squeeze, Marusi, the daughter of the Duke of Luxembourg. The Duchy of Luxembourg was a title in the Bavarian peerage. It wasn't actually an independent state, and so Marusi was of a far lower rank than Louis. Therefore, there was no real prospect of them marrying, but this still worried Victoria and Albert. They didn't want to send their daughter to be Diana Spencer to Marusi's Camilla. In June 1860, Louis and his brother came to England to visit the court. Victoria was utterly charmed by the brothers, calling them, quote, gentlemanlike, natural and pleasing, the nicest young men I have seen for very long. Unlike the Prince of Orange, Louis spent a great deal of time with Alice and the two appeared to get on famously. So far, so good. His English wasn't especially good, but of course everyone in the family spoke fluent German, so that wasn't a huge problem. But the issue of Marusi wouldn't go away. When asked by the Queen's aunt if his flame was as beautiful as she was reputed to be, he simply said, yes. Not helpful, Louis, mate, I would not have said that. After a number of trips together to the races and concerts, Louis prepared to head back to Hesse. Before he left, though, he gave Alice his photograph and asked for one in return, a sure sign of interest and affection. One of Alice's friends went on a two-hour carriage ride with her after Louis left and reported that the princess, quote, 
talked almost exclusively of her own anxieties and sufferings from excessive love for Prince Louis. He is now the one being, the only man she ever did, shall, can, or will love. Louis was equally taken by Alice. He was a rather stereotypical man in that his diary is not exactly awash with feeling, but in his entries for his visit, when he mentions Alice for the first time, it is in block capitals, which I think is 19th century bloke for surrounding it with little hearts. He is rather sparing with description, but does call her, quote, very natural, agreeable, pretty, and nice, which again I think is Louis equivalent of singing from the rooftops. In a letter to his friend von Stuckmar, Albert summarised the visit thusly, quote, There is no doubt that Alice and Louis have formed a mutual liking, and although the visit fortunately has passed over without any declaration, there is no doubt that Louis and Alice have formed a mutual liking, and although the visit fortunately has passed over without any declaration, I have no doubt that it will lead to further advances from the young man's family. We should not be averse to such an alliance, as the family is good and esteemable, and the young man is moral, manly, and in both body and mind distinguished by a youthful vigour. Alice also got the seal of approval from her best friend, her elder brother Bertie, who wrote that, quote, I am sure that you have made a good choice, as I was delighted with the little I saw of Louis, and it also struck me at the time that I did not think it improbable that some day he will be my brother-in-law. I have not the least doubt that he will make you a good husband, and I am equally certain that you will make him an excellent wife, as I know what a good sister and excellent friend you have always been to me. No, isn't that so sweet? That all said, it's fair to say that they still didn't know a huge amount about each other. Now, this is the same with the great majority of royal marriages down the years, but it bears repeating. Alice only had the most superficial impressions of him. She saw a polite, unassuming, modest young man with a military bent and a tidy moustache. He saw a pretty, warm-hearted and fairly conventional princess. That's about it. He did not appreciate her depth, her strength of feeling, and she did not appreciate, as she later would, that Louis was not as intellectually driven or emotionally led as she was. That he didn't necessarily have the supportive qualities that she needed. But that is in the future. Now that Louis had returned to Germany, Vicky once again took over the process. She got in touch with Louis's mother, who confirmed that he had been very happy with the visit and that she was keen to proceed with the match. Once everyone had agreed that they were on the same page, Louis wrote to Victoria and Albert, asking for their permission to pop the question. Delighted with his courtesy, they said yes. Unlike with Vicky, Victoria and Albert decided to give Alice a heads up about the upcoming proposal. She received the news, quote, joyfully, her reluctance to leave home forgotten. Their next passed a rather odd few months, where everyone knew that a proposal would happen and that Alice was going to say yes, but it still hadn't actually happened yet. Seems painfully socially awkward to me, but it seemed to suit everyone just then. Several months later, Louis, again accompanied by his brother, arrived back in England and travelled to Windsor. His English was still pretty awful, but he and Alice picked up things where they left off. But days and days went by and he still hadn't proposed. 
Now things really were socially awkward. Albert had to go to talk to the young man to give him a little push. And then, finally, over a week after his arrival, he pulled Alice aside after dinner and asked her to marry him. Of course, she said yes. Alice then rushed off to tell her mother. She said that Louis told her that he, quote, could no longer bear going on as they had for this week, and then asked her if she did not think Germany too small, and if she should exchange it with England, and that he was nowhere happy without her. Did she like him enough to do that? Victoria then goes on to say that she and Albert sent for Louis to join them. She presented her hand to Louis, which, quote, he kissed and pressed for some time, unable to speak while I embraced him. Then Alice went up to give him her first kiss, and it was a very moving moment, for the dear young man was so overcome with the depth of his feelings that he clasped her in his arms and bent his head on her shoulder. Such a moment is one most touching and moving to witness for parents' hearts, when two such fine and good young beings pour out the first confession of their mutual love, a foretaste for another and better world. The wedding was planned for the 9th of June the following year, giving everyone six months to prepare for the big day. Letters of congratulation flooded in from all over Europe. Well, all bar one. Queen Augusta of Prussia, who we all remember from the series of Vicky, was no nicer to her sister, saying that she couldn't fathom why everyone was making such a goddamn fuss. Such a delightful woman. Louis stayed in England through Christmas, and Albert took the opportunity to give him a crash course in his political philosophy and vision for Germany. Just as with Vicky and Fritz, these two lovebirds had their part to play in his plans. This all happened in the spring of 1861, and this would be an incredibly important year for Alice, filled with happiness, but also tragedy and responsibility. It had begun with her grandmother, the Duchess of Kent, falling seriously ill and dying. Alice had been a constant comfort to her, reading to her every night and playing the piano to try and take her mind off the pain. Victoria was overcome with grief at her mother's death, and while Alice did her best to contain her feelings to take care of her, she too was devastated. Victoria wrote that, quote, Dear good Alice was full of intense feeling, tenderness and distress for me, and she loved her grandmama so dearly. In the coming months, Victoria completely withdrew from public gaze, entirely lost in her grief. As they so often did, Alice and Albert here acted as a team. He took on her public responsibilities, while Alice took responsibility for her mother, who was suffering from a near-total nervous collapse. She would frequently burst into uncontrollable tears and would fly off the handle at the slightest provocation. One tactic Alice used to calm her down was to take her out for a drive, but she had to put rubber wheels on the carriages, as Victoria found the noise of the normal wheels too grating. She did, though, manage to announce Alice's marriage to the Privy Council and arrange for Parliament to vote her a generous dowry. When this was debated in Parliament, the Prime Minister, Lord Palmerston, stated, quote, Those who had the good fortune to be allowed to approach Her Royal Highness the Princess Alice know, by their personal observation, that she inherits all those eminent qualities of head and heart which so greatly distinguish her illustrious parents. 
Her Royal Highness has the good fortune of having made a choice of a prince who, I am persuaded, will prove in every respect worthy of her choice, and the strength of their mutual attachment affords the strongest expectation that in their future life they will enjoy that same domestic happiness of which Her Royal Highness has seen such a model under her maternal roof, which has soothed and mitigated the cares and anxieties of sovereign power, and served as an example and object of admiration to the whole British nation. Side note, you may have noticed me getting slightly out of breath there, because that was all one long sentence. Lord Palmerston loves a ridiculously long sentence. His speeches must have been a real pain to listen to. The leader of the opposition, Benjamin Disraeli, also added his congratulations to, quote, the accomplished princess, whose good fortune it will be in another land to represent in a manner gratifying to all Englishmen the character of her country. That lady, as is well known to public opinion and by her private conduct, has already shown a disposition so eminent for its good qualities, and an intelligence so bright and winning, that I am sure it will not be a mere formal ceremony on the part of the House of Commons when they express in the most cordial and unanimous manner the satisfaction they feel. The dowry was set for £30,000, with an annuity of 6000 This was less than Vicky's, and of course her future would see far fewer riches, as she would not become a queen, but it was more than enough for a future Grand Duchess of Hesse. But... The most tragic part of the year was yet to come. I talked a bit in episode 2.3, Meet the Hohenzollerns, about Prince Albert's final decline and death, but not in great detail, as Vicky, of course, was not there when it happened. Alice was. 1861 had been an incredibly stressful year for Albert. Along with having to take on Victoria's responsibilities after her mother's death, He also had to deal with Bertie's scandals and marriage negotiations with Alexander of Denmark, the growing realisation that his plans for Germany were never going to come to fruition, and the illness of his son, Prince Leopold. He was a workaholic at the best of times, and had always burned the candle at both ends. He was completely ignoring the fact that he was working himself to death. He barely slept and was suffering from numerous illnesses, and this was compounded in November 1861, when he caught gastric fever. While Victoria refused to acknowledge Albert's illness, Alice was far more perceptive. She tried to care for him and get her mother to see sense, but it was no use. She wrote to her fiancé that, quote, Poor Mama is very unhappy about it, but not worried, but she has no idea how to nurse him, although she would so gladly do everything. One must get used to it when one is young. I have to listen to my poor parents' mutual complaints. I only hope that I am really useful to them, for I do want everything for them, if it were possible. She played the piano for him every day and slept in the room next to him, serving as his dutiful and ever-constant nurse. She struggled to appear positive and upbeat in front of her fatalistic parents, while in internal turmoil desperately worried about what the world would look like without her father in it. She felt alone, with both Vicky and Bertie absent. She was the eldest child available, the rock on which everyone depended. It was an intense amount of pressure and responsibility to crush on the shoulders of an 18-year-old. 
a member of the Queen's household remembered this of one of Albert's final days. Quote, The last Sunday of Prince Albert passed on earth was a very blessed one for the Princess Alice to look back upon. He was very weak and very ill, and she spent the afternoon alone with him while the others were at church. He begged to have his sofa drawn to the window that he might see the sky and the clouds sailing past. He then asked her to play to him, and she went through several of his favourite hymns and chorals. After she had played some time, she looked around and saw him lying back, his hands folded as if in prayer and his eyes shut. He lay so long without moving that she thought he had fallen asleep. Presently he looked up and smiled. She said, "'Were you asleep, dear papa?' "'Oh no,' he answered, "'only I have such sweet thoughts.' The Princess Alice's fortitude has amazed us all. She saw from the first that both her father's and mother's firmness depended on her firmness, and she set herself to the duty. Albert could not speak to the Queen for himself, for she could not bear to listen and shut her eyes to the danger. His daughter saw that she must act differently, and she never let her voice falter or shed a single tear in his presence. She sat by him, listened to all he said, repeated hymns, and then when she could bear it no longer, would walk calmly to the door and rush away to her room, returning with that same calm and pale face, without any appearance of the agitation she had gone through. Her only real source of comfort was Louis, with whom she corresponded constantly during the terrible month of December 1861. Two days before Albert died, she wrote to him, quote, It always makes me feel so much better to tell you everything, because you share so much of my feelings and understand my deep love and reverence for dear Papa, who is so great, so good in every respect. When the dreadful day finally came, Alice refused to leave her father's side, even when the doctor ordered her to leave. While everyone else came and went, she stayed. Indeed, it was her that was there for his final moments. At around 10pm, she said calmly to one of Victoria's ladies, quote, That's the death rattle. Victoria rushed into the room, and when Albert was confirmed dead, they knelt together, either side of the bed, in silent, grief-riven prayer. Queen Victoria's grief and the death of her husband has become the stuff of legend. She famously retreated into herself, launching everyone around her into an imposing cloud of grief. She was always someone at the mercy of her strongest emotions, and this was that at its greatest extent. Albert was her greatest love, her rock, her centre, her world. Without him, she was listless, a great ship rolling with the waves, anchorless. The only thing standing between her and total collapse was Alice. And yet, of course, she was working through her own grief. Two weeks after Albert's death, she wrote to Louis's father, quote, My heart is quite broken and my grief is almost more than I can bear. When I think back to the whole dreadful illness, to that dreadful, difficult time that I went through with Mama, seems like a bad dream. And my aching heart bleeds afresh when I remember those last painful hours. Oh God, that it should have been my beloved, adored father there dead, his hands so cold and stiff. I felt as though I had been turned to stone when I saw him draw his last breath, and saw the pure, great, noble soul leave its earthly dwelling. 1861 
was Alice's 18th year. In modern times, that is a year associated with the transition into adulthood, the time when girls become young women. Nowhere is that more clearly the case than with Alice. In that year, she became engaged, promised to a man in a foreign duchy. She lost her grandmother and then her father, a man who was not just that but a mentor as well. And on top of all of that, she had to become the primary caregiver to a mother who was lost in her own grief. Augusta Stanley, who had been with her at her father's deathbed, called her, quote, a different creature in the weeks ahead. And another onlooker said that she showed, quote, fortitude beyond her years. She had her bed moved next to that of her mother and cared for her as if she was the most infirm of patients. She advised her doctors on what medicines would be suitable and took care of the Queen at her darkest hour. It is no exaggeration to say that, in the first days and weeks after Albert's death, Alice saved her mother's life. She was in such an orgy of despair that there was no telling what she may have done had her mother not been by her side. She was not only an emotional support, but also a political one. All business that passed by the Queen's desk also passed through Alice before being promulgated. Her efforts were not just recognised by her friends and family, but by the entire nation. In an editorial, the Times wrote, quote, It is impossible to speak too highly of the strength of mind and self-sacrifice shown by Princess Alice during these dreadful days. Her Royal Highness has certainly understood that it was her duty to be the help and support of her mother in her great sorrow. The word sacrifice in that piece is particularly apt, as this whole episode seems to have taken a great toll on Alice. One can only give so much of oneself without expending too much, and so it was with Alice. People around her saw that she was pale and drawn, no longer the happy child that she was, but someone else entirely. Far more sombre, collected and weary. She was very much a woman now, but one who had gone through a trial that hopefully many of us will never face. And it is on that note that I will finish today's episode. I'm going to be taking an extra fortnight off for the festive season, so I'm afraid it won't be until the 13th of January 2019 until we return to Alice's story, where we will see her married off and travel to Germany for the next chapter in her fascinating life. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.